Well, today is uh, Sunday before Memorial Day, and um, I mentioned this morning and even tonight about sharing the gospel with this, this deckhand on the boat and this man from Washington State who was a veteran and it was in both Iraq and Af- Afghanistan. And um, the the conclusion of the witnessing opportunity was he said he knew right, but didn't but didn't always do right. Um, he his family uh, were, were believers, and he described this this little white church in the backwoods of of Washington State where he grew up, and um, he. Uh, he had very fond memories of it, but um, he knew what Christianity was about. He knew what the gospel uh, was about, and uh, said that if he had to, um, if he had to conclude whether he was a Christian or not, or if he had to label himself something, this is the way he said it, if he had to label himself as something, he would label himself as a Christian, although he didn't always live like one. Now, those of you who know the Bible and know First John, that that is a contradiction in, in of its statement. You can't call yourself a Christian and yet not live like one. And a Christian is someone who is, doesn't just have their, their get-out-of-hell-free card, as I've said a hundred times, but they live under the Lordship of Christ. Yes, Jesus is Savior, but He's also, he's also Lord, He's Master. He is the one that directs your 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 life, and and we talked about that. But but he told me that every morning, whenever he was whenever he was in Iraq, every morning before the patrol, his first sergeant uh, also professed to be a Christian, and so they established this this uh, this practice that before the group would go out on patrol every morning, each guy would take turns sharing a Bible verse, and they had a single Bible, and I don't know who kept it, but whoever the keeper of the book was would bring it out before they would all gather to go out and each person would take the Bible and pick a verse and he would read it out loud and then that's what they would meditate on whenever they went out in, in the, on their patrol. And he said he used the same one over and over and it became the favorite of the group. Can anybody guess what verse that that was. Well, you probably guess a lot of different things, so I'm going to tell you. But it made sense to me after he shared it. The verse was 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. And it goes like this. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may, please, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life so that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. That was his verse, favorite verse, and the favorite verse of the, of the group. He said it made life very simple. I found this interesting. He said war makes life very simple. Every day we go out and every day we're at risk of dying. And when you're in that situation, it makes things very clear. It makes things very simple. You do your duty and you stay alive. That's the two tasks that you have. Every time I went out, I did my duty and I stayed alive. That was the goal. And he said, I think that 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 verse just, just made sense to me. No one engaged in warfare, no one in the midst of a war 
entangles himself with the affairs of life. You don't sweat the small stuff when you're in the, mid, in the middle of Iraq and IEDs can, can blow you up. He said when he first got there, you know, you're riding around in these, you know, these, you got the body armor on and you got the, you know, the, the armored troop carriers and you look at it and he said, you know, you feel pretty secure. I mean, this thing is massive. It's got the the armor plating, all of that, and then you see one of them that comes back in running over a box miner, an IED, and you figure out really, really fast that you have no protection whatsoever other than, other than God. He said that you're not worried about Hollywood, you're not worried about how much money you make, you're not worried about anything when you're in war it's the mission and survival. And the verse that he quoted, the Apostle Paul says that's the way that every Christian is to live. Paul says the Christian life is that way. It ought to be that way. We're in a battle. We're in a war. You've heard it before a hundred times. It's dangerous. And in the midst of that, that verse says we need to be focused on the mission and on, on survival. Not a lot of the trivial stuff, the ticky-tack stuff that we get wrapped up in, whether that's in the stuff that we, that we argue over or whether that's the stuff that we, we consume our lives with. In the end, those things won't matter. And you wouldn't be worried about those things if bullets were flying around your head and you're in the middle of Iraq. But we are where spiritual bullets are flying around our heads on a daily, a daily basis. The problem is most of the time we don't realize that we're in the midst of a battle. And that's the reason the Apostle Paul gives the verse. And that's the reason it's in the Bible, to remind us of, of those things. That's why I think the whole TCS thing was so helpful, both for our church and for our school, because it was helpful to, to remind us that the culture's not our friend, is it? It's not neutral either. It's not you just, you know, you stay over here and keep your nose clean and, and don't engage, and as long as you don't rock the boat then the culture is going to leave you alone and let you worship Jesus and, and be all right. That's not our mission anyway. But, but for those who believe that that's, that that's the best way to handle things, that's not reality. It's not going to leave you alone. You're in the midst of a, of a, of a war, and, and there is a general on the other side, and, and his name is Satan, and, and he's not looking for a truce. He's not looking for a stalemate. He thirsts for your soul Souls of your children, he wants to see you killed, your testimony killed. And it reminds us that, that the world is not neutral and the world hates the gospel and anyone who stands, stands with it. And in Acts chapter 19, I think you see a case study of this. So I want you to open your Bibles to Acts 19. Excuse me, we're going to begin reading in verse 21. And we're going to see, we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul and the clash between the gospel and the culture there. And hopefully better understand our, both our marching orders and how we're to, what we're to expect. Acts 19, verse 21. The book of Acts is the, the Acts of the Holy Spirit accomplished through the the works of the apostles, it's the building of the church. It's after the life of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection. The book of Acts starts with the ascension of Jesus 
And it kicks off with Pentecost, Jesus reminding the disciples of their mission, reminding you and me of our mission, which is to go into all the world and make disciples, be witnesses of me, Jesus says. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. And you've been empowered by the Spirit to do that. And then the rest of the book of Acts is, is how the gospel advances through the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. And then the book of Acts ends, the story's not ended. Paul isn't dead. The gospel is still going on. Luke is still on the mission whenever he ends the book of Acts. And, and I think that's purposeful because we're still on the mission even now. The gospel is still advancing. And here, towards the end of the book of Acts, there's only a few more, few more chapters, you find Paul in a riot in Ephesus. Ephesus is a very famous town. There's a letter written to, to the Ephesians. There is uh, a favorite passage, at least of mine, in, in Acts coming up, and just two chapters later, where Paul and the Ephesian elders have a, have a passionate embrace before Paul goes off um, to be uh, arrested in Jerusalem. There's a letter written by Jesus to the Ephesian church in the book of the Revelation. And here is when the gospel is taking hold and, and there's a riot. Verse 21 says, When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit when he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he went into Macedonia. And two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. And about the time there arose a great commotion about the way. That's about Christianity. It's about Christ. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who'd made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men... You know we have our property by this trade, or prosperity by this trade, I should say. Moreover, you see and hear that, that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger, or falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana, may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent, him, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I hope you're picking up some similarities with our culture. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, and the Jews put him forward, and Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. 
And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. He doesn't want to get in trouble with Rome. For you have brought these men here who neither are robbers of the temple nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, let the courts, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring their charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, let it be determined by a lawful assembly, for we're in danger of being called into question for this uproar today, there being no reason which they may give an account for this disorderly gathering. And when they had said this, these things, he dismissed the, the assembly. After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Continuing the, the gospel witness. Now here's what happened in Ephesus when there was a cultural confrontation in every culture has has idols. Anyone would agree with that. You could say culture in some way is a combination of all of the idols of a specific era, of a, a specific area or time. Every social order or whatever term you want to give them has a set of ideals that they, they govern themselves by, their set of values that they hold, they pursue. And to the extent that those ideas replace the words of Scripture, to the extent that that those set of values, what they pursue, replaces God, their, their idols. Human beings don't naturally gravitate toward godliness. You saw what happened to Adam and Eve whenever they were still innocent, before depravity came. You're born and shaped in iniquity. Okay? You, you, you have the image of God in you, but you've been affected by the fall. What happened when there was no effect of the fall, when, when there truly was an innocent human being? Adam and Eve placed in the garden without a sin nature at that point. Did they naturally gravitate toward godliness? No. You surely don't think that human beings after the fall are going to gravitate toward godliness, and they don't. Without a gospel witness, without a church, Without men of God proclaiming the truth of God, culture doesn't naturally get better. You don't expect food that is set outside of the refrigerator to, to, to stay nice and rosy. You, you see it decay. And that's exactly what happens in a culture where there is no gospel witness, where there is no church that proclaims the truth, where there is no believers. But as the church proclaims the gospel... And as you know, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light, salt purifies, light dispels darkness. As there is no salt and as there is no light, the culture crumbles, it decays, and yet where those things are at, it's not an easy road. The culture doesn't say, salt me, bring me light. Human beings don't naturally gravitate toward, toward God, but they drift from their maker. Culture is made up of a collection of men and their ideas, and every culture and every time period has certain idols. I would say some of you have lived in America 
long enough. You who are 60 and above, you could probably go back to a time when there were idols in the culture, in your culture, in your day, and those idols are different from today. Today we worship the God of tolerance. We want everybody to just get along. There's different cultural idols today, but there are idols whenever you were growing up. There were idols when my grandfather was growing up. There are idols in, in, in this day, cultural idols. And an idol can be identified by, by that which is loved and served and, and, and trusted in. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. What is loved and what is, is what is served and and it's where people turn whenever they're whenever they're they're in trouble. And an idol can be represented by a shrine. If you go to a third world country, the trip guys getting back from Nepal today, a number of you have been there, you've seen them. They're there. I sat beside a lady on the airplane on the way home and she was Indian and her husband was there and somewhere in 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 the middle over from Seattle to Charlotte she got out her Hindu prayer book and she went through the chanting. She had no idea what she's saying, but see her little book there. And when she got done, she put the red dot you know, on her forehead, acknowledging to the God, to the gods and everyone else I have worshipped today. You can go to a third world country and there's a little idol there, there's a little shrine, they'll put the dots on their forehead. And yet, idols don't always have to have a temple. Here in America or in Europe, we're too sophisticated for shrines and, and idols, but, but we have a set of idolatrous beliefs that, that are no different. Some places worship education. Asia worships education, as does some of the European countries. We worship entertainment and youth and physical stature and we're starting to worship you know, this whole idea of equality and political correctness. And an idol is anything that replaces the Creator in His way, regardless of whether it's represented by an image or, or an idea. Anything that supplants God, removes Him from ruler and receiver of worship, is, is an idol. What's the first commandment? God has His rightful place and He's made us. And in the first commandment there is a declaration and a demand. The declaration is, I am the Lord thy God. There's the declaration. I am the Lord. I am God. No one else is God. I am God. And you shall have no other gods before me. And there's the demand. Because I am God, you worship no one else. I alone am God. The declaration and the demand. So what happens when there's a group of people, Christians, that embrace that truth and embrace the gospel and they're interjected in the midst of a culture that is decaying? As believers, by nature, your profession not only rejects all the idols of the world, the very basis of your faith confronts them. I mean, you're saying by the fact that you are a Christian that there is one true and living God and there is one way to live. There is, there is one set of rules. There's, there's one 
one truth. There is no other truth. It's not, well, you're a Christian and you Muslims can live over here and you Hindus can live over here and Hollywood can live over there and everybody can just sing Kumbaya as long as you make your own choice of who you want to serve. The very profession of your faith denies that. The very profession of my faith says there is one God and He's God alone. And, and He's the one that you will worship. And He's the one that you'll stand before one day. And He's the one that, that every human being will give an account to. I mean, that's what you believe. And you believe this book, you believe this Bible is His revelation. Anything that is contrary to this is not truth. It's not another way to live. This is, this is truth. There's no other truth. There's no middle ground. And because of that, there's a war, isn't there? And the only way there's not a war is to, is to create wiggle room in, in, the, in, the, in the God part or wiggle room in the truth part. And to do that denies there's God and denies the Word. There's no way around it. You're in a battle. And the culture confronts you and you confront the culture by what you, what you proclaim. Look at verse 20 of Acts 19. The word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. It prevailed to transform people's lives, just like we were talking this morning. And that transformation thereby threatened, thereby threatened the culture and caused a, a commotion. Verse 23 says, There rose a great commotion about the way. The way is... Is the gospel. The word of the Lord grew mightily and it prevailed and there was a commotion that surrounded the, the gospel. So what should you expect when that happens? I think you can see three collisions when the gospel of Christ encounters the culture here in, in this passage. There are three collisions when the gospel of Christ encounters the culture, and the first collision of the gospel and culture is, is there is a confrontation of, of idols. The first thing I think that you have to understand whenever you're talking about the gospel and culture, about living in the world but not of the world, this whole theme, is the confrontation that took place in Ephesus, the confrontation that takes place every day in your workplace, every day in America, every day in Nepal, every day wherever you're at, the confrontation that, that takes place is with the gospel and, and idols. And the gospel is an offense. It's good news. Before it's good news, it's good news for those who have heard the bad news. And anyone who doesn't embrace the gospel... The gospel confronts it. Verse 23, the, the idea of the, of the way. Those who embraced the gospel were described as those who had embraced the way. Not a way, but the way. As if there's no other way. And that's what's offensive to people. I've heard before in Romans 10, confess Jesus with your, with your mouth, believe in your heart, Confessing with your mouth, the whole idea there is the, is the worship of Caesar. The Romans didn't care 
whether Christians believed in Jesus as long as they worship the other gods. And your culture doesn't care whether you believe in Jesus as long as you allow other gods to be, to be placed on the, on the idol rack with, with Jesus. But that's not the gospel. That's not what the Bible says. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody witnessing and, and you started talking about the exclusivity of Christ? And, and that's when it gets uncomfortable? It's, it's a, it gets uncomfortable when you quote, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me, period. Okay? When you quote that, that's when it gets uncomfortable. Up to that point, you're talking about, you know, you live this way, you know, the Bible and God and Jesus and okay, okay. That's when it gets personal. Because now you, you've, you've narrowed it down to there's one choice. Either you're in or out. What do you do with that? And that's offensive to people. It's confronting to, to all, of the, all of the other, the other idols. The very point of your profession of faith is the acknowledgement that God is God and so no one else can be God. If Jesus is the way to heaven, then there's no other way. The gospel confronts idols, and because the culture is made up of, of idols, it's, it's an offense collides with the culture of the, of the day. I don't think that um, you're going to be a Christian and the world's going to be attracted to, to the church or to the master. Don't be surprised. The only way that the culture, the only way that unbelievers are going to be attracted to the gospel is to remove the cross. And you say, where do you get that from? Paul said that he preached Christ crucified, and the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews. What was it to the Greeks? What was it to the Gentiles? Foolishness. But to those who believe, it was the wisdom of God. I mean, you've got three classes of people there, but there's really only two. The offense is the cross. You embrace the cross. You know the cross is your only salvation. But the cross to everyone else, to the unbelievers, it's foolishness. And to the Jew, it's a, it's a stumbling block. To the religious, it's, it's well, I've got to work. I've got to do something. I've got to add to the cross. It's a stumbling block to them. To the religious world, the, the unbelieving world, the atheistic world, those who reject any religious ideas, it's foolishness to them. I mean, this is a crutch. Christianity is a crutch. To the religious, it's, it's not, it can't be Jesus only. It can't be salvation by faith alone. It can't be grace alone. I've got to do something. I've got to pray five times a day. I've got to do... It's, but to you, it's the wisdom of God. You see the wisdom of God. You see you can do nothing on your own to get there. The only way that you can make the gospel attractive to the culture is to remove the cross. And if you remove the cross, you have no gospel. That's the only way to do it. And yet there's, a, there's an idea that somehow we make Christians attractive, we make the church attractive, we, we, we just compromise a little bit, and, and in, in that way that the world will see Christians are not bigots and they're not mean, judgmental people, and because they're not mean and judgmental people, they'll flock to Jesus and embrace the message. That is foolishness, if anything's foolishness, if you read your Bible. Because they are hardwired to hate 
the truth. The culture is an amalgam of, of idols. And just When I say culture, it's just the, it's the ideals. It's this melting pot. I was thinking about this on the, on the way home, just going through the... I mean, being out west and coming through Seattle and being... I mean, Alaska's full of weirdos. I mean, people that want to get away from anyone or anything, no matter what you've done, go to Alaska. I mean, it's just strange people. And then you go to Seattle... And it's like liberal nut jobs everywhere. And then you're on a plane, and, it, and I was just thinking, you know, this, this whole idea of America is a melting pot. Um, you know, the, I don't know. I mean, we're melting the pot. There's, it's just, it's, and I just looked at everyone and thought, Lord, if you don't do something, we are in big trouble. Because if this is all we got to work with, if I'm all we got to work with, this is, we're in we're in deep weeds, as they, as they used to say, because the culture is an amalgam of, of idols. It's a, you know, a, if you go to the dentist, he mixes up the stuff to, to fill your tooth, and it's an amalgam. It's a, it's a combination of things that meld together and become hard. The culture is, a, is an amalgam of ideals, and, and the gospel confronts that it challenges it for its position and and you can't hide it the the confrontation of the gospel was was public look back at verse verse 8 Paul went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for 3 months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the of the kingdom of God so Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So he goes to the Jews first and he goes publicly to the synagogue and he boldly proclaims Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He's reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom. But some were hardened and they did not believe and spoke evil of the way. There's the confrontation before the multitude. And so he departed and withdrew with the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And now he goes to the Gentiles and he continued there for two years that all who dwelled in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's a public proclamation. You can't be a closet Christian. At some point, it's going to come out, and at some point, when it does, there is there's a natural confrontation. Um, second collision. I think you can see here in this right in Ephesus is, is the is the response of the cultural followers. There's a confrontation of idols. It's God or whatever else people are living for or by. There's the first confrontation. God or Christ, the way, is a confrontation of all the other ways. And then there's a, there's a response of the cultural followers. And it starts economic and moves to ideology and then it turns emotional. Look at verse... 24. Verse 23 says, There arose a commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called the workers together of a similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. 
cultural followers, there's an economic concern. Carnal men motivated by carnal concerns that when the gospel attacks what prospers them, you can expect a backlash. Is that not what's happening in our culture today? Where's the first place homosexual agenda, liberal agenda, whatever it is, where's the first place that they attack? They attack the pocketbook, the wallet. I mean, they, they go after A&E when uh, the Duck Dynasty guys did whatever they did. They, we talked about the Mozilla guy who gave a, uh, a donation to Prop 8 in California. How many ever years ago? $1,000, $1,500 donation. He said nothing, spoke nothing. He just gave a donation to, to traditional marriage and the position of traditional marriage and they labeled him a homophobe and had him removed. Or they were going to boycott... Mozilla and the whole thing was was going to fall apart. I don't know if you saw recently. There's there was a new TV show on A and E about two brothers that that owned property in North Carolina. They were both Liberty grads, and their father's a pastor. And he was sharing with the youth or sharing somewhere in a sermon, and he made the statement. He quoted the Bible: homosexuality is sin, and he was immediately labeled a homophobe and the blogs and everything else started going against A&E and they pulled the show before it ever started. It is, it's an economic concern. People are concerned about economics. They're not concerned about morality. I mean, if you look at what Demetrius here says, he, he says great is the goddess Diana, but he's trying to get people fired up. His main concern is he'll lose business. He's going to lose business. And you can expect economics to come into gospel confronting the the culture after the economics you can the ideology comes in look at verse 27 so not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute I'm going to lose money guys but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. Here's the ideology. Not only is our trade in danger, but also the great Diana may be despised. Here in Ephesus, the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the world. It had 27 pillars, marbles, jewel encrusted. It was the center of Ephesus. And really what you need to know is it mattered. I mean, it was the... You know, they put in um, a mall somewhere, a strip mall or a uh, um, an outlet mall or something like that. You've heard the term an anchor store. You've got to have an anchor store. You've got to have a main store there that will carry the volume of traffic to the place. And if you have that, then you can have all the little bagel shops or whatever else around. But if you don't have an anchor store, you're not going to put up all of those small things. In Ephesus, the Temple of Diana was the anchor store. I mean, this is what drew everybody to the area. It wasn't just to pay for the... It wasn't just to make money off the idols. It was, it was the whole economy there was, was driven by, by, this, by this temple. It made the money. What will the culture choose? What will a godless society... What will someone 
who doesn't embrace the way, choose morals or money? What did our country do whenever they had a second opportunity to elect Bill Clinton after the Monica Lewinsky deal? And what was the common thing that you heard over and over and over? Well, the economy's doing really well. Economy's doing re- economy's doing really well. Who cares if we have somebody who's immoral leading us? The economy's doing well. Culture will choose money every every time. You must choose morals every time and not money. Do you make decisions based on morals and not on money? If you make decisions in a godless culture, in a culture that doesn't embrace Christ, if you make decisions on the basis of right and wrong, it will cost you money. And you can find yourself in in some difficult dilemmas. You can find yourself like Hobby Lobby, trying to make a decision about whether to let the whole thing go down. You're going to find yourself more increasingly in our society whether you, if you are a, you know, you own a, a, a photograph company or you take pictures at weddings or bake wedding cakes, you're going to find yourself forced to either shut the place down or engage in, in same-sex union ceremonies. What will you do? It's a confrontation and it's, it's not easy. It moves from money to, to ideology and And the ideology is is one of the things that drives money. But I don't want you to miss the end of verse 27. Look at verse 27. Whom all of Asia and the world worship. Worship. While there's money and there's ideology, there's a greater force behind all of it. and, And it's worship. And there's a spiritual force. It's not just happening by chance. There's a spiritual force that can't be seen. We go back at verse 17. This became known to both Jews and Greeks dwelling at Ephesus, and and fear fell on all of them, and they they magnified, and all of the and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds and. And also many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value, a total of 50,000 pieces of, of silver. That's 50,000 wages. That's what the books were worth. Worship. Satan is described as the prince of the world and he reigns over a system and the the culture that the gospel confronts is not just competing ideas of who's best. It's not Christianity versus atheism. It's, it's the name of God being attacked by, by Satan. We don't have time to turn there, but write down 1 Corinthians 9.14. Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 9.14 who's behind all of the idols of the world, all the other religions of the world. It's not competing religions. Every single religion other than the gospel other than Christianity has a demon propping it up. That's demonic. That's where it comes from. Second Corinthians four two, Satan's grip is is over the minds of the unbelieving world, in whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, 
that the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should not dawn upon them or should not shine in their hearts. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6 tells us that what we use in the battle, the weapons of our warfare, are not carnal, they're not human, but spiritual, mighty in God. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. That's, that's really where the battle is. And Paul's saying only the, the gospel has the power to, to deliver men. And you've been delivered. And you're in the midst of that culture. You proclaim that gospel and, and you stand on that truth. And as you do, you should expect confrontation. The third response is an emotional one. In verse 28, it goes from money to, to ideology, attacks what they worship, and then it turns to anger, verse 28. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath, and they cried out, Great is Diana of Ephesus, since the whole city was filled with confusion. Verse 30. When Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples wouldn't allow him, and then some of the officials of Asia who were with his friends sent him pleading that he would not venture into the theater, and some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly, the assembly was, was confused. You should expect an, an angry response if you continue to stand. You attack the, the money and what someone worships, the only response is going to be emotional. It's going to be angry. And it's, it's dangerous business. Verse 29 says, Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling commanders, they were seized. And when you're seized, don't take the personal, don't take the rejection personal. And don't think if they hated Christ, they're going to like you. You're attacking their God and their way of life. Verse 32 gives a summary of the whole crowd. One says, uh, one cried one thing, some another, for the assembly was confused. And most of them didn't know why they had come together. Have you ever seen these shows? Uh, um, I think Bill O'Reilly does Water's World and other people. They go stick a microphone in the average person's face and they ask them things like, who's the vice president? And they'll say, you know, Dick Cheney or, you know, We'll say somebody who's never even been the, you know, the vice the vice president. They don't even know. I mean, there are clearly people who understand there is a clear agenda at work, and Satan is behind that agenda, and and you won't find fellowship with it at all. But there's a vast majority of people that that are just going along. I mean, it's like sheep without a shepherd. They don't know why they're there. There's just like here, most of them didn't know why they had come together. They haven't thought deeply about these things. This is what the culture says, and it gets repeated over and over and over, and as it's repeated over and over and over, then they just go, yeah, that, that's, that, that's right. That's what it's supposed to be. Some are not hardcore ideologues. They're just sheep without a shepherd being led to the slaughter, and some are not. I consider the majority of women that 
that fall to the abortion industry falling into that. I consider Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry as the hardcore ideologues that are satanically infused to, to murder children. Most of the people that go along, they, they don't know what they're doing. I mean, they're just in a bad situation. And yeah, they're guilty, they're culpable for what they're doing, but, but they're, not, they're not thinking on the same way as, as the system that's, that's educated and that, that, that is politically motivated. And there were those who were educated and politically motivated and, and Planned Parenthood is driven by money and all of those things are driven by money and, and it's driven by, by worship of a lifestyle. I want to live the way I want to live and I don't want God or anybody else telling me how to live. And then there's... When they stir up the anger or otherwise, people just go along with it and there's a big assembly. The group that aren't the hardcore ideologues are probably the easiest ones to rescue. All the gospel can reach them all. Let me give you the third conclusion really fast. There's the, the ongoing... clash takes place. Ongoing clash of belief systems. You should not think that this is this is a single event. This is not a battle. It's a war. That's why Paul describes it as such. These aren't single events. Single events happen. Battles happen in a war, but this is a war that will continue until the king reigns. We proclaim the gospel and it confronts cultural idols. Those that follow them defend their, their pleasures, their ideology. And finally, with, angry, uh, with anger, um, you'll find the, the end result. Look at verse 33. They drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. Alexander motioned his hand, wanting to make a defense of the people. But when they, find out, when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried, Great is Diana in Ephesus. And the city clerk, when he quieted the crowd, he, he basically said, Guys, the Romans are going to come in and, and do really bad things to us if we don't stop. You have the people's response in verse 34, the city clerk's response in verse 35. And if you look at this, in this crowd there are four belief systems. There's the Jews... There's the Ephesians. There's the city clerk, which represented Rome. And then there were the believers. Four different belief systems. And the people responded to the clash in two ways. They either embraced the gospel or they became more entrenched in what they believed, regardless of what group they were in. And as this war continues to go on, people will respond with deeper entrenchment and the gospel will also advance. When your idols are threatened, when it affects the, your way of life, that's personally threatened. The, the Jews try to disassociate themselves. We don't have any part of this. The Ephesians cried, Great is... Diana and the city clerk tried to maintain the status quo. You know, we're going to get in trouble here. Rome's going to come down on me. He's going to come down on you. And he did this to save his own life. And the believers 
stood firm, and as they did, the, the gospel advanced. Chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, they dismissed the assembly. And after the uproar had ceased, all the ideologues went back to their ideological ways. And Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia to stir up more trouble with cultural idols as he carried the gospel there. He's already sent Timothy and Erastus there, and so he went to meet them, and the gospel advanced. Let me close with this. Which one wins? Culture or, or Christ? Two responses? To the clash, which one prevails? Anybody seen the Temple of Diana lately? It's there. And... Rubble. What about the great empire of Rome? The only reason Israel is alive today is because of the promise that God made to Abraham and, and to David. And God's not finished with them. Cultures come and go, morph and die, and yet the gospel of Christ is eternal. It's transcendent. It prevails across all cultures, and so it never dies. Believe it. Hold on to it. Govern your life by it. And don't be afraid to stand on it. And understand whatever you do, you're going to get pushed back. And if you're not getting pushed back, check to see whether you're removing the offense of the cross. Because that's the only way that you won't.